0: Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an amazing conversation to share with you. I just had a talk with the very talented Suzanne Shani. Suzanne is a composer, a recording artist, and a pioneer in the field of electronic music and sound design. She is best loved for her 15 albums of original music, which feature her performances in a broad array of expressions pure electronics, solo piano, piano with orchestra, and piano with jazz ensemble. Her music, renowned for its romantic, healing, and aesthetic qualities, has found a rapidly growing international audience, and her performances include numerous benefits for humanitarian causes. In the 80s and early 90s, in order to finance her recording projects, Shiani brought her expertise to Madison Avenue. Her New York-based commercial production company, Shani Musica Inc. was the leader in the field of sound design and TV spot scoring, creating award-winning music for a host of high-profile Fortune 500 clients, including Coca-Cola, Merrill Lynch, AT&T, and General Electric. Overall, Suzanne is a very talented individual, and I had a great time talking to her. She is truly a pioneer in her field at a time where it was very difficult for a woman to able to excel and pioneer. Uh, so we dive into that as well as uh, some of her influences and some of the principles that she lived by in order to achieve the success that she has. So I know you're going to love this conversation. I had a really great time with it. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Suzanne Shani. <music> Hey, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show.
1: Hey, Patrick, it's great to connect with all your wonderful people out there, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you.
0: So the first thing that I think everyone's going to be curious about is what is that machine that is is behind you over your shoulder there? it looks to me, someone from my generation, to be like uh, some sort of robot cut open on like a surgery table or something. Could you describe?
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, that that's that's my beloved, my beloved bukla, And uh, you know, this is something that's been uh, a part of my musical life for, oh gosh, since 1968. So it's a dear, dear friend, not a robot.
0: Not a robot cut open on a surgery table, more like a warm living creature. Could, yeah. could you tell me, when was the first time you ever came across a bukla?
1: Well, the first time I came in, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but I was on the West Coast. I'm an East Coast person, and I had gone to a liberal arts college on the East Coast, and then I went out to the West Coast to graduate school, and I did meet Don Bukla. Out there through just happenstance, really. Uh, somebody I knew was studying with the person who lived next door to him. So it was a pretty random connection. But there was also the very first Bukla, the Bukla 100, was housed at the San Francisco Tape Music Center, which was housed at Mills College, which was in my neighborhood. And so for $5 an hour, you could go out there. It was kind of a public access uh, place for electronics. They had a Moog. They had a lot of surplus equipment. It was a beautiful environment, very quiet. It was not officially part of the college. And you kind of had it to yourself. And I would go there and hang out and play the Buchla 100. But I think my most... um, decisive contact was when I met Don Buchle himself, and then after graduate school I went to work for him. Uh, So that's how it all started, was really this collision of not just meeting the instrument, but meeting the man who designed it and being, you know, coming under his uh, just magnetic, I mean he was a very difficult person to get along with. Uh I don't want to, you know, make it sound like some wonderful, you know, sponsorship that was going on. Uh, he was difficult, but he had a vision. And I was attracted to his vision. Even though I was traditionally trained in music, uh, I quickly learned from him that there was another another world that didn't involve traditional ways of approaching music. No, no keyboard. That was primary. Anyway, I'm going on and on and on.
2: No,
0: please, please. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm curious, like, how do you think Don came to that conclusion? Where did he see, did he see the booklet as the future of music or, you know, what was his vision with like his invention?
1: Okay. Well, you have to understand that he was what well, they, I guess you would call him Maverick. I mean, he was not uh a joiner, he was not a typical thinker. He was always outside the box. His socks never matched. <laughs> In fact, I saw a promotional shot just the other day and if you look down, you know, you'll see one <laughs> blue sock and one red sock and, you know, this was his um identity statement. Really, he was different. And he was also a physicist and an electronics genius, and purportedly, you know, as a child invented a transistor. I don't know. You know, his his background is a bit mysterious to me. He did a lot of things. He worked, you know, for the government. He designed hearing aids. He did a lot of, you know, high tech uh, original things. But his passion was for music even though you know he was not tra- well maybe he he had some traditional music training I, I actually i'm not clear about that but he recognized right away that electronics were a different a different beast don't ask me how he figured that out but he spent his whole life creating new interfaces So he never, he never just fell into the trap of trying to familiarize this new instrument by putting something recognizable on it, which is what happened to the Moog. You know, nobody knew what these things were back then. And it was a problem for marketing. All these inventions were made by individuals in the start. You know, there were a lot of first names. You know, there was Don Bukla, and there was Bob Mo, there was Dave Smith, and there was Tom Oberheim. And it was, you know, just a small world of individuals. And Don was one of those individuals, but he was not interested in being commercial. And that gave him freedom. He didn't have to please a public. Or an audience or you know he found a niche making very expensive instruments for institutions individuals didn't buy them right away you know he made them for california institute of the arts or a studio in norway he sold them for a lot of money and, and was able to focus on his Unique approach. Period.
0: That's that's amazing. You know, I, I love stories like that where his own vision sort of created this invention more so than like market pressures or some sort of like capitalistic idea. Because you find that that's like the most raw form of creativity. If he's building it for himself or building it out of his own vision instead of you know driven by other forces.
1: He did do an early deal with CBS Instruments. And that was a complete and utter you know, disaster almost immediately. And he learned his lesson because the promises that they would make, it's like, oh, you know, just let us handle everything. You be the genius and we'll take care of everything. But it, it doesn't work that way because the motivation of these companies truly is not pure in, in the creative sense. And so uh, he got out of that deal and he always regretted it, but he did, you know, recommit to being his own person. And he stayed independent until just before his death, right? Because he, he was old and he had earned, you know, his position in the In the whole world of electronics and he was approached by an australian company that said you know you deserve to just focus on your creativity let us handle everything
0: (laughs) i'm sure he he had learned by then
1: (laughs) he forgot i mean you know whenever as soon as we start to think that we deserve something you know we're vulnerable so yeah, it didn't, it didn't work out. And now the company is, you know, reconfiguring itself in the United States.
0: That's awesome. So, so when you first came across the Bucala, did you imagine, did you immediately see yourself being able to use this as a tool for you, to establish yourself or to build your, to exercise your own creativity or, or what was it like for you when you first came across this?
1: Well, You know, there are a lot of dynamics going on for me at that time. Uh, One was that I had come under his spell. So when he, you know, earlier when he originally invented the instrument, he hadn't quite yet evolved to the consciousness that it was a performance instrument. By the time I met him, He was, he did see himself as creating a new performable instrument in the tradition of performable instruments. And I took that to heart. And so from the very beginning, I was involved in live performance. I wasn't, you know, I did record a few things, but my main uh, output was doing live quadraphonic performances in museums, with dancers, in galleries, wherever. Um, it was hard to do it in a traditional theater because of the quad. You know, we, we played quadraphonic from, from the beginning. Um, the other thing is that I, I really think I had an opening as a woman because there was there was a closing in every other respect. So being a composer, in you know coming of age in where what it was at 1970 uh i realized that it was impossible it was nearly impossible to be a female composer and make a living if you were a woman in music then there were two assumptions one you were a teacher period You weren't a professional creator. You you know, you were a teacher. And if you were a professional, the assumption was that you were a singer. Period. Women were singers or women were teachers. And I was neither. So the thing about the Bugla was that it gave you control over your musical output completely. I didn't need other musicians. Uh, I could, I always said of myself as a composer. Uh, I could, I could, you know, traditionally in composition, you write and then you copy the parts and then you give it to the musicians and the musicians, you know, if you can find them, uh, perform it, maybe well, maybe not so well, whatever. Okay. But then with the booklet, as a composer, you write in the middle of the sound, you're doing compositional processes and you have complete control over it. So it was very attractive and it was spatial, you know, I mean, it was just immersive and, and amazing in and your ear, you know, at a whole different experience because of the sound You know, it was so, the highs were so high and the lows were so low and the way it could move. So, you know, I just took to it um, naturally. I mean, it was just perfect for me. You know, who knows? It was instinctive. It was like a, you know, learning to fly.
0: I I think it's so cool how as an instrument, it it sort of is almost like a metaphor for, for that time with technology in general, just it sort of opened the door to all these possibilities that people hadn't conceived of before. You know, like you mentioned, there's new sounds that your ear has never heard before. Humans have never had the opportunity to hear that stuff. And it's right at the time where, you know, in parallel, like computers and uh, microprocessors are all sort of starting to take off and develop in a way that, you know, again, is new technology that we'd never conceived of before, been able to imagine before, all sort of unlocking right of, right around the same time. Very cool stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the computers in my time, in those years, because I I did go to Stanford um, in 1969 in the summer to study with Max Matthews, the father of computer music, and John Chowning, the father of FM. And, you know, the computers were the size of, you know, yachts. I mean, they were big. Mm-hmm. So there were there were no personal computers in those days. Everything was a bit out of reach. Uh, but what you're talking about, which is that revolution towards personal uh, power, was in progress then. yeah
0: and and I mean, you you really embody that with like you mentioned the you know you you had, you're essentially a composer for an entire band as an individual with your one instrument, you're able to create all these different sounds and it sort of unlocked your own, uh, your own potential as a musician, given the assumptions that you had, you know, just as a woman, uh, like you mentioned that they expect you to be a teacher or a singer. You're able to sort of unlock a full potential there.
1: You have to be careful with your mental, um, Correlations of, of what it was about, because sure. um, when you use the word band, I mean this was a different world. It was uh, it it didn't have to do. You know, later we had MIDI, and people were sending you know directions via MIDI to particular sounds like oboes and flutes and guitars and drums, and this is not that. This was analog, and it was very fluid, and there were not, um, they were not individual, we we didn't care about this, the individual sounds. I understand. It was the way the sound could move. So there was nothing like, oh, this is a pretty sound, Mm -hmm. or this sounds like a whatever. Um, it was like this mad world of, you know, being able to trigger things uh, in a very controlled way, but non-traditional. So it didn't. It didn't resemble. I mean, I listened to my early recordings, and I think, no wonder they weren't popular. This <laughs> stuff is really hard to deal with. How do you
2: deal yeah.
1: with it? It's only now that kids are actually playing analog instruments that uh, they, they can relate to what was going on in those early analog instruments.
0: So how, how did you take you know, your initial experience with it, uh, w- with this music, with this new sound? And y- you, know, you, you were able to be very successful in two ways, uh, which uh, I think like a lot of artists cannot be business people, and a lot of business people cannot be artists and you're able to deliver on both of those very successfully how how did you you know take take that experience and, and your development of that new music with new sounds to you know sort of carry it on as a full blown amazing career
1: well i was driven technology was very expensive back then it was beyond reach and my goal was to have it And the other thing about technology is that there's always the, the bleeding edge, you know, the, the front edge, that's where Mm -hmm. I want to be. That's the attraction of technology is that you be on that that front edge and, and it's exciting there. It's every day it's changing. And to be there, I had to commit very clearly to making money. I had a, I had a cause. I said, you know, I need, I need this instrument. I need to be able to, you know, I, in those days, if you wanted to record your music, you had to have a record deal. There were no, you know, I mean, yes, there was a two track recorder or whatever that you might get hold of, but multi-track recorders uh, were in very expensive studios and nobody knew how to make lps right those weren't personal productions like they are today you needed to have a record deal a record company made record so none of the record companies wanted my music they'd say well what do you need and i'd say well i i need a studio for a week with a multi track and an engineer they said we'll give you three hours with drums, bass, piano, guitar. You, know? <laughs> you sing. <laughs> I don't sing. Well, you know, get lost. So that door wasn't open. So I couldn't. I couldn't make anything to sell. And I realized that to do that, I had to make money. I had to do it so it was expensive i mean my first album took two years and um, i had to hire outside studios for thousands of dollars a weekend i i think it's so funny when i hear kids complain about the cost of stuff today i mean i know it's a different generation and it's really horrific how kids get out of school and they're in debt mm-hmm. to their you know Eyeballs. I. It was a different time back then, but um, technology wasn't cheap. That's all I. Yeah, guess now, so I had now, to-
0: now everyone has GarageBand on their phone in their pocket at all times. Right. Completely different story, and and maybe that takes away some of that drive if, if it if it's so accessible. You know, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's negligent. Now you can uh, not pay attention to it because you don't have to do what you. <laughs> Like make a business out of it, put your entire life, you know, purpose on the line to make it happen, to get access to those tools.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there is, a, a, you know, a, you know a, as an analogous situation today, I don't know what it would be um, that would inspire, you know, doing, you know,
0: stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like the the stuff that's really on the fringe of technology now is it's almost so far. It's so it's so complex that it's it's difficult to even chase. Like I talked to people on uh, on this show about uh, you know cryptocurrencies and AI and and different technologies that are they're sort of right around the bend. Probably the way that computer technology felt. Uh, You know decades ago, you know sort of on the horizon people speculating about what those technologies could do for society or uh, But still nothing nothing totally concrete yet or or nothing really uh, accessible to everybody just yet
1: But there is the distinction that you just made, you know There is the technology and and then there's you know, it's a tool and it's the thing you use it for right So those are two different departments, and uh, having having a technological ability is one thing, but steering it in the direction, you know, what what takes the lead? If you wanna solve the problem of ocean pollution, you know, and you wanna dedicate technology to helping that, that's already, you know, a, a vision. That can make you get up in the morning and do things that drive you. You know, having a cause is is really important. Technology on its own, how I don't care how fast you know it's faster, it's bigger, it's whatever. I mean, all of that is a nice abstraction. But it's a tool, and we we want to use it. You know, I used it to make music. But you know, what could inspire? I hope somebody does save the ocean. Honestly, that's my big, you know, and, and plastic. I mean, I, I don't care. I mean, now they're using this tool just to measure the disaster. That's a start. How much plastic it's, is in everything we eat.
0: Yeah. You know? It's it's yeah. crazy. There, there are some really great people out there working on projects to make quick nets and capture all the plastic and, and I'm with you it's it's like we need the right kind of technology to to inspire that kind of to allow people like if you had technology that can measure the problem that we have, which is like the amount of plastic in the ocean, that could give someone the right uh foundation or, or positioning to want to then conquer that challenge instead of it being sort of in the dark, something that they can't even if you can't you know sort of crystallize it, you can't work on it yeah
2: yes mhm.
0: Suzanne, one one thing that um, I'm interested in, this is sort of my own pseudo-philosophy, I noticed in your background, you're from Massachusetts, right? You're from Quincy? Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I personally grew up in Weymouth myself.
2: Oh, so cool.
0: Very nearby, and I feel there's just something in the water out there, something uh, that <laughs> just, I don't know, shapes the personalities of the people that grow up in that area. Do you, do you have any insight on, like, do you or do you feel like growing up in that area had, had an influence on you when you came out to California and how that sort of affected your ability to work with people?
1: I I still don't feel like I belong here. And I've been <laughs> no longer than I've been any place. This morning when I got up, I, I went outside, and I could smell autumn in the air. Don't ask me where it came from, but it just drives me crazy. It's like a Proustian experience because it happens only in the East Coast, and maybe you know once in a blue moon out here. Um, I miss the East Coast. I don't know if I could ever live there again because I've been out here so long. You know, I've adapted, uh, but yeah, it's a different, it's a different world. What, where, what brought you to Texas? I mean.
0: Or, or to California?
1: Oh, California! Oh, you're in California. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm in Austin. Where Where are you?
0: Uh, I'm I'm in Burbank, so just <gasps> north of uh, Los Angeles.
1: Burbank. Okay. What brought you to Burbank?
0: Uh, well, so similar to you, I'm very interested in uh, technology, and I moved from uh, Massachusetts where I was working uh, in residential solar for Tesla. Uh, and me and a lot of, uh, the guys that I worked with there, we moved to the, to the Bay area originally to start a, a solar company called Sungrade, uh, where we do residential solar installations.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, it's, it's sort of in the same vein as, you know, it's a new technology, it's evolving and we see so much potential with it. And it's really just chasing after and, and, you know, being there, uh, in the forefront where we can, you know, we're new technologies like batteries and uh, you know, just sort of seeing the change in climate of, uh, you know, energy policy and stuff. It's really like sort of a current uh, industry. It's something that's, I see a lot of potential in in the future. And I, I, I you know, I'd love to see more people get involved with it and sort of break down the barriers that are stopping it from, you know, being nationwide or being, uh, you know, widely accepted or widely used.
1: I understand from my brother-in-law, who's a physicist, that uh, the one thing nobody seems to understand is batteries.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that's the, the big stumbling block there, because you need to store the power. So what do you, you know? I know Tesla made an amazing, you know, battery. You can buy this thing for $10,000. It's like this big futuristic rectangular thing you can put on the side of your house. Did you get involved in that?
0: Uh, So we we offer that to our clients and it's something that I imagine will be like what you described a computer is like the size of a yacht, you know, uh, a few decades ago. That's I imagine like what the current batteries are like, you know, they take up an entire room, you need eight to 12 square feet of clearance around (laughs) it to get it approved. Uh, you know, it's, it's this big, uh, uh, hassle and it's, it's sort of that constraint between us having, you know, accessible energy and unlimited energy, you know, if we're able to have enough solar or, or clean nuclear or whatever to collect, to, to generate power and then be able to store it, uh, and, you know, small or large batteries, you know, it's right on the forefront of, uh, really excess energy at a much cheaper price than what we currently pay.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a nice trajectory. I mean, we're used to that in technology, that things start out big and then they get smaller mm-hmm. they start out weak and then they get more powerful. And let's just hope that that's the case. For, yeah. you know, our power needs. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, here in California where they've had so many wildfires, you know, with PG
0: and E Yep.
1: and they're just sending out word now. It's like, Hey, you want us to pay for all this damage? Well, guess what? We're just going to shut off the power.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. We'll shut off the power as soon as it gets dry and there's any chance of you know igniting a spark, we're just going to you know be prepared. You get these emails that say, "Be prepared for seven days without power." You know, this is what you do: get your water bottle, get your this, get your medicines, get your you know your medical equipment whatever, yeah. and uh so that's where we are now. We're in transition where we don't have you know our traditional power grid is dangerous mm-hmm. and they have lobbied against you know, I have solar on my roof.
0: Beautiful, love well, you. Not
1: allowed. Yeah, I'm not allowed to use that energy directly. I mean it goes through the grid, and that mm-hmm. grid they can put down whenever they want. So anyway, it's, it's a strange time.
0: It, it's a, it is a very strange time. And for some reason, I feel like all those big company, Google, Apple, I have a feeling they're not going to be without power when PG&E shuts it off. You know, <laughs> something tells me that they're still going to have electricity uh, over <laughs> in Silicon Valley there.
1: Right, right. I mean, they're saying things like to um, commercial establishments like restaurants Make your plan, you know, for having no power for seven days. <laughs> it's like I can see us going to a restaurant with our little candles and paper plates, and, and,
0: and they'll be cooking in the back over like a wood fire. It's it's, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. I, uh, you know, but that that does leave me, a, a, you know, sort of in a makes me think about the way that. These companies uh, create their messaging, right? And and the way that like PG and D is able to deliver one of those messages, they they sort of wrap it up in, in the, a, a nice jingle or you know uh, you know with a good header and whatever to sort of cushion the the impact of those uh, those messages, whatever they will be. And you have an extensive career working with companies making their messaging, their advertisements. Mm-hmm. And I'm that stuff really is is super interesting to me because a company like Coca-Cola to come up with an advertising campaign with all their uh, money behind it, all the thought that must go into one of those projects to to identify this brand, especially one as big as Coca-Cola. It's like what what is their motivation, and how do you work with a company like that to deliver what they're looking for?
1: Well, you know, in those cases, too, the the branding which is a word that came up later, you know, uh, was really about the the poetry, the poetry mm-hmm. of the message. These companies were large, but, you know, we didn't have to talk to them. You know, the problem with big companies now is that you have to interface with them. It's not enough for them to just, you know, make you feel good. <laughs> when, you, <laughs> you know, when your TV's not working, or when your telephone is not working, you know, you need to interface with that company and forget it. They have no interface. They have people manning telephones who don't have a clue. And then you have to work yourself up a hierarchy of these, you know, these things to somebody who might know something. I don't care if it's Apple tech or anybody else. There's just no contact and boy, you could go to the genius bar, you know. Um, but anyway, that's a problem. Coca-Cola, in the days when I was working in this uh, very romantic, poetic field of sound, sonic identity for companies, I mean, it was just pure uh, fun, artistry. You know, I, I loved it. And did I, you know did I approve of all these companies? I mean, I did turn some down. You know, I wouldn't do G.I. Joe because it was a war toy or whatever. And I know Coca-Cola is sugary water. But, you know, it was, um, it was uh, the, there was so much freedom then in advertising. It was the renaissance, really. It was a period of pure, beautiful creativity. With money behind it. Mm-hmm. It was before people came in and said, Well, all we care about is the bottom line. And and now it's just a battlefield. I mean, forget, I mean, if they want something, they hire fifty people for nothing yeah. to come up with something. And it's ridiculous. So anyway, I was there at a time when um It was, you know, maybe you know a very. It was a very good time to be there for creative freedom and for high quality work. I didn't work in a home studio, right? I mean, I, I booked very expensive, high tech studios, and uh, had a lot of support. You know, good engineering, good technology. Uh, Coca-Cola, you know, as I said, I was mercenary then because I had a goal. I I needed money for my album. So when Coca-Cola asked me to do a sound, my brain was firing away, you know, saying, wait a minute, how can I maximize this opportunity? What can I, you know, what's, what can I do? And when they asked me to do the sound, it was for one song. They hadn't didn't have plans of using this thing every place for years.
2: Mm-hmm. It was just
1: like, there's a little space in this jingle right now. Can you put something in there? And I thought, well, let me think about that. If I put something in there that works only in that space that they've given me, that's the only time they're going to use it. But my brain said, hey, guess what? You could do something that could be, could work in any number of contexts, in any number of songs in different keys. Make a sound that doesn't have a pitch center. And that's where the bubbles came from. It was a sonic, you know, poetry uh, that allowed uh, you know, functionality in a lot of different places. And sure enough, they put it in that first song and people loved it. And they decided to put it into everyone all over the world. And so, you know, I thought about that. I was driven financially. I don't think there's anything wrong. I I think the idea of thinking of an artist is, is above, you know, business consciousness. This was something that was created by the industry to be able to take advantage of artists. It's like it wasn't cool to know what was going on in the business part. And fortunately, that's changed today. Artists Mm -hmm. know that they need to know what's going on or you're vulnerable. You know, if you don't know how publishing works, somebody else is going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) so um anyway uh i wasn't ashamed and i had no business training none i ran my business like an italian family i don't mean the mafia type but (laughs) that's all i knew was family you know that was my larger sociological context for working with a group of people. Mm -hmm. I took care of everybody like a family and they were my family, the people that worked with me. And, uh, And it worked. And I never did anything until I absolutely had to. First of all, as a woman in business in those days, I couldn't get a loan anyway. So the whole idea of having somebody dump a big amount of money into my business to see what would happen didn't exist for me i came up against problems issues organically and when that problem was in total stress i would do something about it but not until then i didn't expand just to expand I expanded when it was bursting at the seams and needed to move. So I had certain principles that I followed in. You know, I. I it also, because I ran it like a family, I didn't think of business as competition. I wasn't in warfare. When you, when you look at business and the way they teach it, or then, anyway, because somebody once gave me a book said, "Hey, you need to study business," and it was all about campaigns and and defenses and offenses and upper, you know, <laughs> yeah, kill the other guy,
0: tactical warfare. <laughs> right.
1: And I was never in competition. It was like I do what I do, and guess what? Nobody else does what I do. I am a unique, creative voice and quantity I am not if if you can do it better than I can you do it you know I didn't see it as a me or them Mm -hmm. and so I could say no without fear if somebody said would you do this and the and the you know the parameters weren't acceptable to me I just said no and other, the industry started to slump because uh, there were really unacceptable requests coming from the, you know, the, the business people. And I would say to my fellow music houses, I'd say, you know, this isn't right. You You can't accept that they want these things, you know, like free demos or, you know, pen demos or whatever it was. And they said, well, if we don't do it, somebody else will. And that kind of thinking is what eventually, you know, really gutted the industry. Hmm. So, you know, my, I wasn't professionally trained in business, but I think that the instincts that I had served me well.
0: That's great. And, and I'm, Curious, are there any other principles that you live by that helped you break some of those barriers? I mean, I, I find it hard. I think a lot of people today couldn't even imagine that the challenge, like, or, or the sort of the climate back then is hard to imagine now. Like you mentioned, you weren't able to ever get alone, like, forget about it. Like, uh, I think that's even with the current, you know, there, there's a lot of discrimination against women in the workplace and a lot of challenges with women in the workplace, but that level is clearly something that, we're, that I don't think we're experiencing as much today at least has changed. Like, how have you pioneered your way? What other values did you exercise that, that allowed you to break through those barriers? Cause those, again, the barriers are much bigger.
1: I was lucky because I was doing something that didn't have, you know, that was pretty unique was unique. So the sound design thing that I offered in and, and the high tech approach to sound production was a little corner of the industry that people didn't understand and I didn't have a lot of, you know, competition. So I was lucky in that way. And it gave me, um, a play field that, you know, where I didn't have to be fighting other people. It also, you know, had limitations, uh, because it wasn't known, you know, like not being able to get a record deal or not being able to, do concerts, you know, because I, you know, I had a concert at Avery Fisher Hall in New York and they wouldn't let me put up four speakers. And I said, well, I I play only in quadraphonic. And they said, well, we, we can't put up four speakers in this theater. And I said, well, then I can't play
2: Mm -hmm. here.
1: So one of the things I learned was how to hold your ground. Did I get what I wanted? No, but did it propel me in a good direction? Yes, I started, um, I started a corporation, a not-for-profit called the Electronic Center for New Music and its goal was to create quadraphonic theaters. I had people on my board from the Audio Engineering Society speaker companies. They were redesigning Avery Fisher Hall because they had acoustic problems. And I thought, okay, we're gonna rebuild it in a modern footprint. It didn't work, it didn't happen. And the funny thing is they just did it again. They just rebuilt it again. And it's now called David Geffen Theater. And I didn't even bother, you know, to, <laughs> It, different, but, uh, but that would have been, you know, I, I just didn't have the, you know, the passion or the energy anymore to do that. But um, I think it will happen. I see there are some young people in Germany now who are working on this, uh, you know, spatial approach to music and creating the environments for it. Mm-hmm. And, and they're very clever because instead of designing an entire theater, they're making an an internal infrastructure. So they have a hexadome and they bring the structure inside an existing space.
0: Oh, okay. Wow.
1: The audience gets to go in and there's all this wonderful visual, uh, high def visual screens surrounding you and, you know, 60 or so speakers. So it's, it's, it is happening in a different way that, and I like this way that it's happening. Um, so I, I was just going to say in terms of principles of what you're doing, like today, when I started to come back to performing Bukla, and I would say, I need quadraphonic Well, people were not excited about that. They said, well, we can't do that. And I said, well, then I can't play. And if you hold your ground, people will get the message. There are some things that are negotiable, and there are some things that are not. You can't, you know, you have to have, uh, you know, honor whatever it is that your communication needs, right? You need to honor that. And you stand up for what you need and people hear it. And if they can't come through, then nothing's lost. You just don't do it. And how I how found, would
0: you determine, sorry to interrupt you. How I've would you determine ahead. what those, what those non-negotiables were? You know, like when you stood your ground, how did you know that that was the ground that you wanted to stand on? That that was like what your requirement
1: was? Well, you know, as I said, in, in the old days, we played only in quadraphonic, and it's an inherent part of the bukla design of controlling sound. And it's one of the most beautiful parts of the instrument, that you have control voltage movement and placement of sound. We even had more control in the old days, because Don made a voltage controlled spring reverb very crude Mm -hmm. but you could make the sound come in and go away you could bring it close and bring it far away so you were creating spatial you know illusions um powerfully today i don't have voltage control reverb i've come you know i've made a, a a workaround for that but it's not even the same as it was back then. But okay, so, you know, quad is absolutely part of the vocabulary of the machine. And you know what, why compromise? I mean, is this impossible to do? No. Is it more expensive? Yes. But, you know, sometimes, you know, I've shown up where it hasn't been uh, what I expected like where they didn't understand that the four speakers have to be equal. Yeah. Because in the early quad, when they tried to make it, you know, a viable thing for uh, music commercially, you know, there was quad in the uh, seventies. They didn't know how to use it because there was no meaning to it outside of, you know, electronic music really. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to recreate the experience of being in the theater and the front two speakers will be like the front of the stage and the rear two speakers will be like the back of the room. And that's how this idea that the back two speakers weren't that important, that concept came into being. But in electronic music, they're all equal. And and it's a different animal. And I think now that so many kids... Are playing analog. They're going to want this. It's so amazing. You know, just to have that quad. I I don't know, and you know, there aren't that many quad interfaces. I mean, there are spatial interfaces
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, that are very popular, but most of them, a lot of them, most of them, are post production movement of sound and placement of sound and in the booklet's actually part of the of the music right it's it comes right with the you know it's rhythmically integrated with the sound
0: so so your stance on you know not budging on on you know if they didn't have quadraphonic it's for the integrity of the art that you're not willing to budge.
1: Yeah. I mean, there really is no choice.
0: Yeah.
2: That makes sense yeah. to me. <laughs> uh,
0: I'm, I'm also curious, you know, like when did you recognize your value to be able to shoot, to say no, you know, cause I think a lot of people, like you mentioned, like what sort of, you know, drain the, the industry was people saying, well, if I don't do it, then they're just going to hire someone else to do it who will, you know, break their integrity or whatever. How, how did you determine your, or how did you, recognize your internal value at that point to say no and to know that it's actually a, a you know better move for you.
1: Well, you know we all have unique voices. Mm-hmm. We're not replaceable. The way you do something artistically is the way you do it. So we are unique. For me, it was easier to see that because I was doing something that nobody else was doing to a large degree. So maybe I was lucky, you know, maybe if, you know, what your job is, is, you know, jumping from the sky with, you know, I don't know, colored lasers or whatever, and nobody else is doing it, you know, you have your own identity
2: mm-hmm. doing that.
1: I think we need to see our value and, 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 and honor it. That, that other person, you, it, it's not the same. I mean, there are things. Well, I always say, if somebody else can do it, let them. I actually don't want to do what somebody else can do. I want to do what only I can do. And we all have that. You're doing this blog now, and it's not like, you know, Hundreds of other people could be you. No, this is your desire. This is something that you created. And you're free to do it, right? And to do it the way you want to do it. Freedom is important. I know it's a luxury to talk about freedom. And I think it's, it's a very American thing in a way. And maybe it's a selfish thing to be free. I'm not completely free. I have family obligations. I have people I care about. I have pets I care about, you know, I mean, I have constraints in my life, but I do think that freedom is uh, a huge energetic force.
0: Absolutely. I I think you can only really have uh, freedom today if you are able to capitalize on your own internal, whatever you're able to give to the world, your own personal gifts, creative gifts, whatever you're able, whatever artwork you're able to do, whether it's in business or music or whatever, uh, because that's the only thing, you know, it's like your own personal creativity, that brand or that identity is the only thing that can weather any economy, any, you know, the dollar could crash or whatever, as long as you have your value and people recognize just your value, what you can bring to the table, That can weather any storm and you can be successful regardless of what's going on and and, and perpetually too. You know, it's not just a, something that happens one time and then you lose your value altogether. It's something that once people really like and enjoy, they're gonna keep coming back for.
1: Give me an example.
0: An example. So. Uh so one of the uh my uh one of the people I look up to in podcasting is Joe Rogan. So Joe Rogan has built this massive brand that is uh the the people that he interviews and the lifestyle that that those interviews and those conversations sort of encourage. And if Joe Rogan disappeared tomorrow off the face of the earth, uh while there would be a huge vacuum there, it doesn't just get filled in by someone else. It's a brand. It's a it's a it's a identity that only he was able to create with his you know really long and and you know uh diverse career that has led to this point where all these different interests converge on his podcast so it's something that it, it, you know if he's gone it it's not no one's just going to it's not going to be like joe rogan junior steps in and and it's all the same it's something that it's a unique cog in the cultural machine that you can't just replace yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like if you're, you know, it seems like you definitely unlocked that as well. And um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, but the, this sort of, the reason why I, this, I really like this idea is it it really falls in line with a philosophy that I uh, picked up from a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. It's mm-hmm. an amazing book. And, you know, it's all about, you know, whatever you're doing in life, you know, defeating the resistance that tries to stop you from doing whatever you're natural calling is and becoming a professional and just showing up every single day to make that calling happen and then ultimately how you know it's really up to you to determine what what your personal gift to the world can be the universe whatever you can deliver that nobody else could deliver only you uh and just chasing that because if you don't you're ultimately robbing the world of your creative genius or whatever you could contribute so it's sort of uh, it's your duty to show up and and uh, you know exercise your creative power and it seems like something that you're definitely able to unlock and achieve because you can't replace Suzanne right
1: right right and and you know it something else was triggered while you were talking um this this idea that you have a goal or that you're you know you have a vision and you're you, you've decided to go there um I always tell myself, like, you know, there are, no, there are no straight lines in nature. I mean, things do not go linearly from one point to the next. If mm-hmm. you decide you want to go from one point to the next, expect a whole lot of interference and blockage. And, you know, it's not natural to, you know, try to go. You know, it, it's natural just to kind of, you know, bumper. And I do go with the flow. But it's the flow combined with a vision. Mm-hmm. And the vision says that's where you want to go and you keep your eye on that. But it's not, um, you know, a direct straight line, right? And so, straight yeah.
0: line, there'd be nothing to achieve.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't, you know, it's so funny because I remember a, a long, long time ago, I did a, um, an interview and the B-52s were there. And I can't remember where it was, it was in New York and what it was or anything. And I'm saying, oh, you know, I did this and I, you know, and it was so hard and I got there. And the B-52s said, it was really easy for us. We just got up one day, (laughs) you know. You know, we just sang and we had a hit song and then we, you know, had another hit song and like, you know, we never struggled at all. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's cool too. You yeah. Know, you don't have to have the struggle. The struggle is an idealization of, you know, the muscle or whatever. But you have to be open also to just letting things be easy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not, um, you know, as I say, I try to keep the middle ground. So I go with the flow and I trust. I trust the universe and it really does you know energetically kind of give me what i need
2: yeah know? i think it's
0: it, i mean you, you trust the balance of the universe right that if you put something in you're going to get something out you know it's not going to be asymmetrical it's not just gonna uh you're not going to give your heart and soul into something and get nothing in return you know like it's it's the fact but that,
2: that, that you can, there. yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's the fact that you know that with one input, you should get one output, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Are there any love
2: life? How's your love life? <laughs>
0: uh, you know, it's it's great. You know, I I love a lot of people. We got a great family, great friends, great people in my life. So it's uh you know, that's all you can ask for, right?
2: Right. Right. Good.
0: I'm curious. Are there any? Do what? What are your some of your influences, or some of the people that you look up to? Or are there any like books that have really influenced you, or anything that you'd like to share with the audience that that you think they they really need to know about?
1: Oh my um, gosh! I'm sure your audience could tell me more about books. Um, you know, my reading tends to be whatever my book club is up to. You know, we're doing Richard III.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: A lot to be learned from that. (laughs) It's like he just killed everybody so he could be king.
2: (laughs) Some
0: lessons to take away there in the business world.
1: Uh, You know, people, I think it really is important to have, uh, you know, role models or visible, you know, people that embody, you know, something that speaks to you. Um, For me, when I was young, uh, I, I think it's actually a failure of our culture that I didn't have role models in music, because as it turns out, what I'm finding is that there were women composers. There were, and there were women in technology from the 40s, 50s, 60s, amazing women, and and we didn't know about them. I, I didn't know about them. Wow. I, went, I played at Royal Albert Hall last year in a program. This is in London, a program of women pioneers. I played the Boucle. It was wonderful. And They premiered a piece by a composer named Daphne Oram, O-R-A-M, who was actually the founder of the very famous BBC Radiophonic Workshop? She wrote this piece in the 40s and late 40s, 49, maybe just after the war. She wrote it during the war, but it was finished then. Uh, and it was premiered last wow. year.
0: That's amazing.
1: Isn't that disgusting? <laughs> <laughs> and. And the piece was revolutionary. Two orchestras with a barrier in the middle. One orchestra played just acoustically and the other orchestra was electronically processed, live. I mean, you know, this, this it was unheard of and it hasn't been done since. And we didn't even know about it. I cried. I I was denied having this role model in my life. So I think right now, you know, what women are doing is simply discovering who in fact has been there.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: They were there. It's not like women are just waking up and doing stuff they've been doing stuff it's just been invisible so part of our job now is to just uncover you know what's really already there and then you know the other part is to um is to just keep going you know forward with our yeah. own unique you know,
2: voice uh,
0: that's amazing yeah it really you know like of course there have been women throughout history doing amazing things you know it's impossible for fifty percent of the population to just be completely silent right this entire time uh, and I think that's a really good point like I, I find one of the most important things for people today to do is to try and find role models that have what they want you know whatever that is you know whether it's in a creative field or or business field or whatever uh, just look at people that have what you want who've sort of made it through the the challenges that you're sort of trajectory is going to push you through and uh and that's that's a really interesting perspective that you you, those people existed you just didn't know about them
2: yeah that's that's
0: amazing because i feel like now like one thing i always think about is how americans like if you took all americans probably more americans know about kim kardashian than elon musk right right and nothing against kim kardashian but (laughs) when you, as far as like an aspirational career stance and like what you kind of impact on the globe, you know, it sort of of is an indication of our value system when more people recognize these like entertainment icons more so than the technological or, you know, business pioneers uh, trying to do, you know, make big changes.
1: I, I think we live in so much stress now, culturally, that that's why these things are popular you know it's kind of like a relief mm. you know kids get out of school they've got you know debt up to their ears and and you know there's just nobody has health care and everybody's suffering and and people you know i mean it's just just day to day life is is challenging it's hard to have i mean that's why people do this binge watching it's like my god uh what a waste!
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a concentrated escape from reality,
1: <laughs> yeah, right? Just want to escape, but I yeah. think what we really need to do is is kind of you know fix it, get it functional, yeah. so that we enjoy reality. <laughs> and, um, you know, do what we need to do. I I feel so sad, you know, for women now. It, it's just a hmm regressive environment you know the idea I, I mean I don't know if you want to talk politics at all but you know the, the whole uh, lack of mm, it's a complicated it's a complicated thing but the bottom line is that women uh, you know they're struggling If the most women are working now they have careers they have to it's impossible to raise a family and to have you know to function without income and they have children and they have no childcare mm-hmm. and they're just juggling, you know, all this stuff that is impossible. And I say that if they want women to have children, women don't do that alone. That's a partnership. Yeah. The woman can get pregnant with on her own. And, and they have to find a way of legitimizing the role of the male vis-a-vis the child. You know, it shouldn't all fall on the, you know, sh- shoulders of the woman how to take care of that child. If we want to have children in our culture, we need to provide for them. We need to make laws. If men are making laws, let them make laws that, provide for their children it's their children it's not just the woman
0: yeah yeah it's yeah it's an interesting time because it's it's a very counterintuitive thing where on one hand there's this big struggle for like uh for women have more power in the workplace and in business and uh but with that comes you know it's like a lot of individual responsibility uh and then with the burden of raising a family on top of that, it's, it's too much for any one person to bear. And you see sort of, I you see stories in the news where people are experiencing that conflict of delaying having a family to exit, to, you know, accelerate their own career and, you know, the psychological effects of that and like where they find fulfillment in life. And so I think it's a really interesting thing that it's counterintuitive, but the solution is, is for, uh, you know, men and women to work together to be able to raise the family together in a supportive structure whether that's the woman uh in the relationship being at working or the men staying home or whatever the dynamic healthy dynamic is it's finding that dynamic and not expecting it to fall on the individual uh no matter who it is
1: yes it's a partnership yeah and we have a lot to learn you know i i travel a lot now because i'm doing these concerts all over the mm-hmm. world you know and i maybe it's a brief visit but i do notice you know the dynamics in in other cultures and how different they are and how we are so arrogant as if we know what we're doing and how we just brand things you know like uh in in political ways that make them uh closed doors you know Mm -hmm. Uh, so you know if you go to sweden uh you know they have they have parental leave they have parental even some of our corporate environments now are taking on uh more humane dynamics like my 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 niece's husband works for google And he gets, gosh, I don't know how many months off. When they have a child,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: he gets parental leave. And it's amazing. And that's just Google. You know, that's there. Yeah. It's not a federal government, you know, subsidized thing. Yeah. So there are enlightened pockets.
0: That's what I like to see, too, is more of like, because as much as a, like a government program would make it essential, right? Uh, it's sort of like the way that it's done doesn't address the problem. Like, I think it's people need to have those values internally, like the, the executives at Google have to have those values to have a company policy where they allow that to happen, as opposed to if it's enacted on them by a government uh, program that must be fulfilled. The values are still not there. So the program's going to be distorted or over time inflated or whatever. It's just not going to be accepted as if people all agree on why they need those things.
1: Right. Right. Seeing the That's, big, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's interesting time because even i I heard just recently, like companies like even Walmart are coming around to, you know, extended parental leave. And it's, uh, I think addressing those social problems with, Values is usually the right answer as opposed to more laws or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they are making laws now, though.
0: Yeah. Well, you you know, politicians got to stay in business, right? You know, they need need to, it's hard to tell 500 federal politicians or whatever say, hey, guys, we're good. No more laws. You know, like they got to, they need to have a purpose or something to fight for, right?
1: right? Or get elected. Back to the dark ages. I mean, yeah. it's just amazing how we're talking about technology and, and the wonders and beauties of it. But, you know, there's this backlash against science in general, which is shocking to me. You know, that science is not um, a, a valid um, knowledge base, that it's all fake news. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God. Um, you know, because in a way, science was the uh, going to be the savior. You know, of of um, didn't take the place of religion. I mean, religion is just in a different department. It's like you have you have a mind and you have a brain,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but you have a soul and you have a you know brain. I mean, there are different departments that we live in, and they're all integrated but um, they don't, they don't uh, negate each other. My brain can function in a certain way. My mind can function, you know, can talk to my brain and, you know, they might disagree and then we figure it out, you know, but to try to make everything just, uh, you know, one way, it's not all science and it's not all religion and it's not all whatever, it's like everything, it's mul- there's multiplicity. It's okay to have more than one value system mm-hmm. that isn't threatened by another one. It's not all or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's what choice is all about. It's not about, you know, people should kill babies. No. But can we hold in our, in our, you know, value system that it's a complex reality.
2: Yeah. It's
1: yeah. It's,
0: yeah. It's not, I agree a hundred percent. It's gotta be, we have to be able to identify all the different variables that go into any decision about anything, you know? And so when it, that that's why, uh, you know, I find that like more laws are not always the answer. Sometimes we need to balance things out and look at it from, again, like a more of like a value perspective. And do we need to enforce these things as laws or can we enforce them just as people?
1: Yeah. Yes. Go
0: well, ahead. Suzanne, this has been an awesome conversation. I've had a really great time getting to know about your, your background and your influences and everything like that. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing some more work too, or hearing <laughs> some work. Correct. Yeah. Um, And I'm curious, before we wrap up, are there any sort of last words or asks or requests of the audience, anything that you'd like to leave them with, any words of advice or inspiration or anything like that?
1: Well, uh, let's see. Um, Gosh, so there really are people out there. There are, hello. (laughs) Um, You know, I live in like very much isolation. You know, I live in this little place by the ocean. So Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of people and uh yeah then i go out and i play in festivals and i see a lot of people but um you know it's it's a kind of quiet life that i i'm in so i i don't pretend to know what's going on really i don't know what's going on but i appreciate the opportunity to interact with this big or small whatever unknown audience and, uh, you know, any, do you have feedback in your system there? I mean, I, I don't know. It'd be fun to hear from, from your um, people.
0: Yeah. Where, where can they find you? Let's point them your way.
1: Well, not me personally, maybe, but um, what? Oh, I don't know. Maybe that's a silly thing to say because I obviously can't handle communication. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm
0: sure they'll I, find you, you know.
1: But um, anyway, um I am learning. I'm learning what's going on in the world. You know, you're a different generation from me. You know, I know my own, um, and I'm. I'm really. I have great on respect for your generation because you guys um, put the brakes on. We were marching forward in this kind of inevitable path to nowhere and out of the blue really like some form of like very unexpected miracle the way i see it as the kid said wait a minute stop stop we don't want to just keep going that way we don't want digital to take over i'm tired of you know using a mouse and and you brought back all this historic stuff including the instrument i play Right? The analog modular musical instrument. That was not, you know, and when we played that a long time ago, uh, it was never fulfilled. The promise of the instrument never materialized because it got sidetracked and it went down the digital, you know, left turn. So now you guys said, no, we want LPs, we want cassettes, we want analog. And it's like for me, I'm, I'm, Thrilled because there's more to do there and and I I hope and we are doing it this time so I feel so happy and just shocked and amazed that we're getting a second chance at doing this stuff and that too is an example of not trying to have everything be one thing. It's not like everything, you know, you don't have to kill digital. You don't have to get rid of it. You just need to put it there. And Mm -hmm. over here we have this, you know, we have live analog performance and interfaces for performing electronic music. It doesn't have to be the whole thing but it's something that deserves to live and evolve alongside of evolutions in digital technology and all that. So, you know, I appreciate that. And I think your generation has brought that awareness and, and, you know, new life to something that I care about.
0: Well, I think a lot of that, you know, is only possible because I I look at it as like a pendulum, you know, swinging back and forth and on a lot of the, the, you know, hope and vision and, and uh, of like the late sixties, seventies, a lot of that stuff is now just swinging back into popularity, just, you know, by the nature of things. And, you know, it's, it really, the credit goes to your generation who, you know, were, Uh, like you mentioned, on the frontier, on the front edge, pioneers like yourself sort of defining these, defining the culture at that time, you know, like creating these sounds that even themselves sort of echoed sort of a new future in uncharted water that we hadn't been to before with technology, new sounds. And it's the work that, you know, people like you that did that sort of uh, is now just clicking back to our generation now to give us the start picking up where, where are they left off to, you know, advance this sort of advance forward in a way that we want to be. So you know, I, I'll give you the credit.
1: Yay. Okay. We'll do it together. We're doing this together. So that's cool. yeah. great. It. Okay. Well, thanks Thank Patrick. It was really fun. Take care. Thank
0: you, Suzanne. No Thank you problem. so much. It's been a blast.